Welcome to the Timberlake Christian School podcast. Timberlake Christian School, founded in 1966, is a ministry of Timberlake Baptist Church. Our vision is to be a discipleship and educational institution for young people in order to develop them in a passion for glorifying God and train them for a life consistent with a biblical world and life view. For more information, check out our website at timberlakechristianschool.org. Go Tornadoes! Alright, we're going to be in Genesis 1. Stuff's all good. And I'm going to read one verse before we pray today. Can you turn me down just a little bit, Cody? One verse before we pray today, and then we'll get into the message. So Genesis 1, everybody has it open to it? I'm going to read just the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you that you don't make mistakes. You're sovereign and wise and good. You know exactly what you're doing at every aspect of our lives. Lord, today in chapel, we are going to think on and meditate on and explore what your word has to say about the greatest subject we could possibly think about, and that's you. God, you are so mighty and powerful, and I'm such a weak, frail creature. I am woefully inadequate to talk about this subject. But God, I pray that by your spirit, you might empower us to understand what your word has to say, what you have revealed to us in the Bible And Lord, that we might apply these things to our lives. God, I pray that this wouldn't just be mere theological exercise, that this wouldn't be just jumping through hoops to find out logical bits of information from your word. But Lord, that as we see you in the pages of scripture, that we, as we have just sung, would behold you, that we would magnify you, and that we'd give you great glory and honor and praise, because you deserve all the glory and honor and praise. God, thank you for being such a kind, loving God. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, how many of you guys, juniors and seniors-wise, are going to be 18 by the election in 2024? How many of you guys that apply to? So there's a good number of you guys that are going to be able to vote soon, right, in the next election, okay? Maybe? I guess we'll see, right? So for those of you who might be voting, perhaps this will be interesting to you, okay? All right, listen, guys. So about two weeks ago, one of the leading candidates, for the Republican nomination for president, he tweeted out this list of what he called 10 truths that he wants to build his whole campaign on. And when I saw this, I was really intrigued because the first truth that he listed was God is real. That was interesting to me that he said God is real. And then in another interview, this same candidate said, I was raised, this is his words, he said, I was raised in a two-parent household with a focus on education, with a focus on God, With a nuclear family as the unit of governance that mattered most to us, that showed us that the love of family opens you, opens your heart up, listen to this, to the love of God. And we raised our two children, my wife and I do in the same way. We live our lives according to Christian values. And again, in an op-ed he wrote for the New York Post, the same candidate said this. He said, we all bend the knee, if not to God, to false idols instead. And you hear that, and right offhand, I was like, man, this is kind of cool. 
This guy is a Republican candidate for president. He's, he's like number three in the running right now for the, for the nomination, okay? And he's, he's all about God. He talks about him constantly. But there's a little bit of a kicker here, okay? The presidential candidate who's saying this, he's not a Christian at all. Even though he references Christian values, and even though he constantly references God. In fact, he's a Hindu. He's unashamed about it. He talks quite a bit about the fact of how solid he is in his Hinduism, his, his Hindu faith. His name is Vivek Ramaswani. You guys ever heard of him? Vivek Ramaswani. And, and Mr. Ramaswani, again, is a practicing Hindu, and yet he constantly appeals to God and to Christian values. Now, I'm not bringing him up in any way to endorse or not endorse him, or to say you should or shouldn't vote for him as president. I'm bringing him up only because I think he is a startling example, and all of this is just over the past few weeks. He's a startling example of the fact that in our culture, there is tons and tons of confusion about God. We live in a culture where a Hindu candidate for president can appeal to God to gain credit with Christian voters. That should be somewhat alarming to us. There is quite a bit of confusion about God in our culture. And I'm sure if I was to ask you guys, you could give me other examples of common phrases you've heard that illustrate this confusion about God, right? What about the man upstairs? Just trying to do everything for the big guy upstairs. You ever heard that phrase before? The man upstairs. Or maybe, I believe there's one God, and all of the world religions simply show different portraits of him. You heard that before? I've heard that before. Or what about, the divine is in all of us. You heard that one before? Again, we're created in the image of God, but what do they mean by that phrase, the divine is in all of us? Or maybe even you have the mocker, right? God is simply an idea that humans invented to have something to believe in. It's, it's okay if you believe in God, but we just all need something to grab hold of, to, to hope in, right? There's tons and tons of confusion about God in the world around us, and that list could go on and on. And really, that's the great question, isn't it? Uh, let see, this is working, maybe? Who is God? Who is God? I mentioned last week that this, this year in chapel, we're walking through Genesis 1 through 3, and we get four words into Genesis 1, and we're suddenly encountering this question, right? In the beginning, God. Who is this God? What ought we to know about Him? How should we describe Him? How does he relate to us? In many ways, guys, and seriously, listen, this question is quite possibly the most important question you could ever ask. The most important question you could ever ask. Who is God? Uh, a theologian and pastor from the, the 20th century, um, passed away towards the end of the 20th century, the 1900s there, A.W. Tozer, he famously said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So there's no subject more worthy of your attention this morning than this question. Who is this God that we meet in Genesis 1-1? So here's what we're going to do today. We are going to embark on a little bit of a journey today through the Bible to see what the Bible has to say about God. 
We're going to see what the Bible has to tell us about God. I want to, in a sense, and I'm trying to put everything up front here, my goal here is to overload you today. I want to overwhelm you with biblical information about who this God is. And you might say, why do you want to do that? Well, because I want to try to show you how magnificent and grandiose and huge this God is. And let me be clear on this. We're not today even going to cover everything there is to cover. I'm just scratching the surface. I'm not even scratching the surface. I'm like you guys in the multi-purpose room that picks off a little bit of the laminate off the top of a table. That's all that's going on. Barely a little bit of it gone. I might be saying that because of something in my heart about you guys doing that. But anyway, right? Just a little bit. Miss Allie knows what I'm talking about. Just a little bit of a scratch on the surface is all we're going to do today. But it's my hope and prayer that the Lord might use our time in chapel to help you, whether you think you know a lot about God already or you know absolutely nothing about God. Okay? I want to help you begin to develop an understanding as finite and minute and tiny as that's going to be, about what the Bible has to say about God. All right? That's our plan. So the first thing I want you to know from Scripture is that God is utterly different from us. God is utterly different from us. This is a healthy place to start. In many ways, God is absolutely unique. He is completely different from us. I'm going to mention four little ideas, not little, huge ideas, but four quick ideas, I should say, on this subject. And we can mention a lot more. First thing I want you to know is that God is spirit. John 4 is the passage with Jesus with the woman at the well. Jesus is talking to her, and he says explicitly here, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So when we say God is spirit, We're saying that God does not inherently have a physical body or corporal form like you or me. He is invisible. Again, now he takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus, right? But God is spirit, Jesus tells us. Second thing, God is radically independent. Now, many of you guys think that you're independent, but you're not. I think that I'm independent. But I'm not. But, but I'm not. But I'm not. <laughs> but I'm not. In, in that the burning bush, God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3.14. And God, when, when asked who, Moses is asking, who should I say spoke to me? And God is revealing his name in a sense here. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. In the verse, he says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Sometimes we call this idea, for those who have Bible 10 next year, or we'll hear this later this year in Bible 10, God's aseity, aseity, the fact that he doesn't need anyone or anything else. God doesn't need anyone or anything else. He's not dependent on anyone else. Rather, everything else that exists depends on God, and nothing can exist apart from God. God defines reality. You ever thought about that before? These are big thoughts. God defines reality. So we could say that God is self-existent, which is to say that he exists in and of himself, fully independent, fully free of needing anything. Third idea on this point. God does not change. Here, the prophet Malachi, God is speaking through him, and God says, 
for I, the Lord, do not change. All of us change. You're growing and developing every day. By the time you leave TCS, you'll be a different person than when you first came to TCS. But God does not change. God was the same before the beginning of time, and He will be the same at the end of history. There is no variation in God. So God is spirit. God is radically independent. God does not change. And the last one here, this is a big one, but God is infinite. That means that God is limitless. God has no boundaries. There are no edges to God. And God is infinite, we could say, in regard to time, meaning that he's eternal, he's always existed, he always will exist. There never was a point in the history of anything where God was not. There never will be a point where God will not be. God is infinite in regards to time. God is infinite in regards to space. We call that his omnipresence. We're saying that God, in all of his fullness, is fully present in every molecule of the universe. God is infinite in regards to space. We could say that God is infinite in his power. His, he's omnipotent. That means he has all power. He, he can do whatever he wants to do. Nothing can hold him back from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. God is infinite in his knowledge. We call that his omniscience. That means that there is no limit to how much God knows. It's not just that he knows everything. It's that God fully knows the fullest extent of everything that could possibly be known at every single point in existence. Every detail about your life. God knows. And then God is infinite in his moral excellency. That means that God is completely perfect. He's beyond perfect. He's like a blinding light that we cannot gaze upon. He is fully, infinitely good. In um, my Bible 10 class again, we, in the curriculum for that class, we look at Psalm 139 for an example on this last point. Can you turn your Bibles to Psalm 139? Turn to Psalm 139 just to illustrate this. I think this is helpful. For those of you in Bible 10 currently, this could be homework answers for you later in the year. So, hey, there you go. Psalm 139. In this psalm, David brings out three of those infinite characteristics of God. If you look at the first six verses, God talks about, uh, David, I should say, talks about God's limitless knowledge. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He talks about how God knows everything about him. And then starting in verse 7, all the way through verse 18, God, uh, David here talks about God's infinity in regards to space, his omnipresence. He says, there's nowhere I can go to get away from you. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. So there is nowhere that David can go and get away from God. And then at the end of the psalm, in verses 19 through 24, David talks about God's omnipotence, his limitless power, as he hopes that in God... There in verse 20, or sorry, in verse 19, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. He trusts that God has the power to make all things right in the end. So this psalm is helpful because it points us to God's limitless knowledge, his limitless power, and, or his limitless presence, I should say, and his limitless power. That God is infinite. Okay? So that's just the first thought. Is everybody still with me a little bit? Maybe? Told you I'm going to overwhelm you a little bit. It's okay. All right? So the first thought is that God, again, is utterly different from us. But, secondly, we need to also see that God has qualities 
that he calls on you and I to imitate. There are things in God that we are called to imitate. The first one is probably fairly obvious to you. God is creative. Right here in Genesis 1.1, we're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means that just as God is creative, he, he put forth, he, he made all of the universe by the word of his power, so we as creatures made in his image are called to create. But secondly here, at least in our line, line up for this, this chapel, God is holy. God is holy. Uh, this is a point that I wish we had all chapel for, but we don't. In Isaiah 6, you guys know this story? Anybody ever heard this story? Isaiah has a vision of the temple, right? And he sees God filling the whole temple. And there's these, these special angels called seraphim. And they're flying back and forth in front of God. And they call out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. Uh, there's so much we could say, but let me just read a quick quote from R.C. Sproul. He, he wrote a book called The Holiness of God on this. This is from a sermon he gave on the subject. He said, Do you notice here, dear friends, that the seraphim don't say that God is holy, nor are they content to declare that He is holy, holy. But the heavenly song that celebrates the character of God declares that He is holy, holy, holy. He talks about that no other attribute of God is repeated three times like this to show how, how big it is. When we talk about God's holiness, we're saying that he is utterly set apart from us. He's completely morally pure. He is in a league of his own, and he calls us to be holy even as he is holy, even though we can't do that necessarily. So he is holy. God is righteous and just. Deuteronomy 32.4. Here, Moses says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. The God of faithfulness. And without iniquity, just and upright is he. So we're saying that God sets the standard for what is right and wrong. God always does what is perfectly right. He always executes perfect justice in all of his actions, which means that God must perfectly punish your sin. And when God's justice is applied towards your iniquity, we call that his wrath. God is righteous and just. But simultaneously, God is love. 1 John 4.8, here the Apostle John literally says that God is love. Not just that He is loving, but that God is love. God is holy and righteous and just. And at the same time, He is full of limitless love. His love is beyond our comprehension. The same God who, again, displays wrath towards sin perfectly, full of, fully justly, is the same God who so loved the world, according to John 3.16, that he gave his only son. And then lastly on this point about God's qualities that he calls on us to imitate is that God is gracious, merciful, and kind. Let's turn to Ephesians 2. Turn your Bible to Ephesians 2. Can we do that? Turn in your Bible. I should hear some pages moving. Ephesians 2. And let me just read the first, I'm going to read the first 10 verses here. And as we do, I want you to see how God's grace and mercy and kindness are unfolded in this passage. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, listen to this, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So again, we could go on and on about these, these character qualities of God, these attributes of God. He's full of grace. He, he gives un, what is undeserved towards those who can never deserve it. He's full of mercy. He doesn't give what is deserved to those of us who deserve it. He's, he's full of kindness towards us. He's patient. He's long-suffering. But again, the point we're trying to make here is that God has qualities he calls on us to imitate. So we've seen that God is utterly different from us. We've seen that God also has qualities that we are called to, to live out in our lives. But we need to, to go a little bit further, okay? We've taken a survey, all right? Focus in for me, okay? Let me show you a couple different pieces of biblical data for your consideration, okay? To reach towards a third thought here. All right, everybody, focus in. I know. It's worth your time. First thing is the Bible clearly teaches that God is one. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, the Shema here, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And at the same time, the Bible teaches that the Father is God. There's this person called the Father who emerges in Scripture, and we're told that He is God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father. So God is one, and then Scripture teaches that the Father is God. But then Scripture also teaches us that the Son is God. This is John 1, 1. The Word here is referring to Jesus, the Son of God. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and here's the kicker, the Word was God. So the Father is God, Jesus is God, but God is still one. And then the Bible also teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God. In Acts 5, there's this account of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you guys know the story there? They sin against God by lying about the, the gift they had given to the church. And Peter, when he speaks to Ananias, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he clarifies what he means later. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is referenced here as God. So there's one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But then we're also shown even more that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct. They're all different from one another. It's not just as though there's one God who goes by the names Father, Son, and Spirit. But all three of these persons who we're told are God in the Scripture all exist at the same time. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke real quick. Look at Luke 3. Turn to Luke 3. Luke 3. In verses 21 and 22 here, I just want you to see this. This is the baptism of Jesus. Okay? 
And look at this. We're going to see all three of these persons that the Scripture says are God are all there at the same time. Now, when all the people were baptized, this is Luke 3.21, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So we have Jesus, God the Son, being baptized. We have the Spirit, God the Spirit, coming down as a dove onto him in the form of a dove. And we have God the Father speaking from heaven at the same time. Do you see that? All three persons are there at the same time. And so we have this reality that emerges in Scripture. And it tells us that God is three, and at the same time, God is one. God is three, and at the same time, God is one. And in Genesis 1, where we're going to spend a lot of our time in this year, especially this first semester, we'll see this same thing emerge. In Genesis 1.26, God will say, let us make man in our image. So we see this singularity and this plurality in God emerging here even in Genesis 1. Now historically, the church has defined this doctrine of God's threeness and God's oneness with the word Trinity. You guys know the word Trinity? God is the Trinity? Yes? You guys know the word? You do? Great. So God is three and one. That means that God is one. God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Spirit. So the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. So God is at the same time three in person and one in essence. And there is no illustration or metaphor that properly catches what this doctrine is teaching. You can't wrap your brain around it. No matter how hard you try, there's no way for you to understand this reality, that God is three and God is one. Let's look at one more verse on this. Turn to Matthew. You should be in Luke. should just be a little bit before you. In Matthew 28, I think this is one of the clearest verses that talks about the Trinity. Matthew 28, verse 19. I like hearing those pages. That's good. Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19. This is part of the Great Commission. And Jesus here is, talk, is commanding that we baptize those who trust in Jesus for salvation. And look how he says that they should be baptized. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, that's singular, that's one, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? One name, three persons. One essence, three persons. This is the Trinity. The fact that God is one and God is three. Okay, so we've seen that God is utterly different from us. God also has qualities he calls on us to imitate. God is three and God is one simultaneously. And there's two more things I need you to know. The first one is this, and this is a, a very um, kind of bold statement to make. God is in complete control of all things. God is in perfectly complete control of all things. We call this God's sovereignty. God is the one who is ultimately in charge. He is the great king who perfectly and completely reigns over the universe. It's a huge claim. Let me show you just three verses that support this claim, even though I could show you many more. Here's a first one for your consideration, okay, from the Word of God. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God does what God wants to do, and nobody can stop God from doing it. Our God is in the heavens. He does all 
that he pleases. Pretty clear. Let's look at another one. This is from Ephesians. We were just in Ephesians. This is verse 111. So the 11th verse of the first chapter. Here, Paul says, In God we have obtained an inheritance, or in Jesus, in him, sorry. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose. Look how he describes God here. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God works everything that happens according to what he wants to have happen. Everything. Nothing happens apart from God's sovereign will. Now let me make a clarifier here. I'm not saying that God is the author of sin. We're responsible for our sin. But I am saying that this verse, I think, teaches, along with other passages like Romans 8.28, even in Genesis 50, where Joseph is talking to his brothers, that God works even through sin to accomplish his good purpose. Nothing happens apart from God's will. One more verse to consider in case you're not convinced yet. Um, And we can look at a lot, but this is from Proverbs. Proverbs 16.33. This verse is crazy. All right, look at the verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. By a lot, you can think of like a dice. If you roll a dice in a game, every roll of the dice is predetermined by God. Nothing happens in the universe that is random. There is no such thing as luck or chance. God is in complete control. Did you know that? God is in complete control. And one more idea I want you to know as we're looking, again, we could look at so much more. This is like literally this much. But one more idea that the scriptures teach us about God. And that idea, we have to start to get there with a question. So we've talked about how God is different from us. We've talked about how God has qualities we're called to imitate. We've talked about how God is three in one. We've talked about how God is in control of all things. But as we think about how God then will relate to his creation, I think it's proper that we ask this question. What is God's primary motivation in all that he does? Why does God do what God does? What is his purpose? The the theologian Jonathan Edwards on the First Great Awakening, he would talk about it as though, what is God's ultimate end? Why does God do what God does? And graciously to us, he has revealed that to us in his word. Let's look at Isaiah 48. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. This is just one example, but I think it's a very clear example. Actually, this is one that Jonathan Edwards and then even um, later theologians taking from Edwards' example used to to point to this. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. The Lord is speaking. And let's see what he says here. God says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. So what's God's motivation here? Look at the passage. God says, for my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake. He says it twice. For how should my name be profaned? And then he ends with this, bold, this, this, this huge statement, my glory I will not give to another. 
So what is God's motivation here in Isaiah for deferring his anger and for showing mercy to his people? It's his own glory. His own glory. God's primary motivation in all that he does, I think this is clear from the pages of Scripture, is his own glory. So how do we define that word glory? Uh, there's a pastor named John Piper. I've referenced him before. He, he kind of follows the tradition of Jonathan Edwards on this. And he has a definition of glory. He says, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Let me read that again. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. So when God pursues his own glory, he's putting his holiness and goodness and righteousness and perfection on display. So when we say that God's primary motivation and all that he does is his glory, then we are saying that God's primary desire in all of his works is to magnify himself. Now that might sound strange to you, but I want you to think it through based on what we've already talked about. If God is the greatest good in the universe, and if he is the most valuable reality in all of existence, then the highest motivation that God could possibly have must be himself. God is the only being who is not selfish to seek his own glory in all that he does. In seeking his own glory, he actually seeks what's best for each of us. Again, big thoughts. So we're going to end this, this very brief survey of what the scriptures have to say with this verse from Romans. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground. Let's focus in. I'm wrapping up. We've covered a ton of ground. Again, I told you you're going to feel a little overwhelmed. That's fine. Let me just quickly recap. Okay? So we've seen that God is utterly different from us, right? He's utterly different. He's, he's spirit. He's radically independent. He does not change, and he is infinite. And yet at the same time, God also has qualities that he calls on us to imitate. He is creative and holy and righteous and just and loving and gracious and merciful and kind. The list could go on. And furthermore, the Bible shows us that this God who created all things is simultaneously three and one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet there is only one God. And then we saw that this God is in complete control of all things. He's sovereign. And as he works in all things, his primary motivation in all that he does is his own glory. God seeks to magnify himself. As, as Edwards would put it, God is the ultimate end of all his works. His ultimate end is himself. All right? So for you, you might have listened to all of this, and you're like, man, that was a lot. Like, I don't know why we did that. And, and you're thinking, what, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? I want to very quickly, just with, with a couple statements, I'm not even going to really explain them, just talk about if all of this is true, if this is the God of the Bible, if this is the God that we're introduced to here in Genesis 1, what does that mean for you? Everybody focus this way. Let's listen. Just a couple of ideas before we close. First, there's only one true God. Even when there are politicians like Vivek Ramaswamy trying to claim that his God and our God are the same God, there's only one God. And he's described in the pages of Scripture. Secondly, God made you for his glory. 
You were made for Him. Your greatest good is in God Himself. You were made to find satisfaction and hope and life and peace and joy and rest in God. And in so doing, you glorify and magnify His name. Thirdly, every sin that you commit is an act of rebellion against God and justly deserves His righteous wrath. Every sin. I think about David with Bathsheba. You know the story, right? He, he steals Bathsheba from her husband, cheats, on, cheats with her, and then he kills Uriah. And then in Psalm 51, God is talking about, he, I mean, David is confessing his sin. You know what he says? Against you and you only have I sinned. Against God. Every sin is primarily an affront to God's holy name. Third, but God, in his grace, mercy, and love, has made a way for you to be saved from the wrath you deserve through the death of his own son. God, for his own glory, predetermined before the foundations of the earth that he would send his son to die on the cross and take the wrath that you deserved to save you for the sake of his name if you believe in him. And then lastly, if you place your faith in Jesus, you can be reconciled with God and in this reconciliation with God, you can find ultimate joy, satisfaction, hope, and life in Him. Sometimes we talk about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus came to do by dying and rising again, and we focus so much on the benefits of the gospel. You can find forgiveness. You can find eternal life. You can, find, uh, you can receive God's righteousness. You can be adopted into the family of God. All those things are true. But the greatest benefit of the gospel is that you receive God Himself. We talked about it last year in that doctrine of union with Christ. So, just to close, going back to how Mr. Abbott started our year. Do you know this God? Do you have a vision of God that is as big as what we talked about from the pages of Scripture today? Do you know Him? Have you placed your faith in Him as your only hope? He sent His Son to die and rise again to bring you life. He didn't have to, but He chose to for the sake of His glory. So I would just urge you, if you don't know Christ and saving faith, if you've never understood or just all this information my God might even be new for you, if that's new, come talk to one of us. Me, any of these teachers around, we want to help you. We want you to grow in knowing the Lord. Let me pray, and then we'll sing a closing song. Lord God, I, just, I still feel so inadequate with this topic. I, I, I'm, such, I'm so weak, Lord, but you are so strong. Lord, your word is so clear. It is sufficient. It has everything we need. Lord, I pray for each of these students. God, I know we're in an atmosphere here at TCS where we are just inundated with Scripture, and I just did more of that today. I fully recognize that. But Lord, I pray that you might be pleased by your Spirit to unfold the Word of God for them, that they would catch a glimpse of how magnificent and beautiful you are. I think of Moses speaking to you, saying, show me your glory. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you be pleased to, to, to make yourself known amongst this student body this year? God, we, we praise you, we glorify you, we magnify you. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased by our worship and by our study. God, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, you didn't have to send him, but you did. For the sake of your praise, 
You, you sent your Son to redeem a people for yourself. And God, I pray that there might be people here whom you redeem in this room for the sake of your glory and honor and renown today. God, I thank you so much for how good you are. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.